We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular commentator Ross Feingold. Good evening. And on the telephone from Kaohsiung by equally regular commentator and Southern Taiwan correspondent Michael Smith. Thanks for having me. Tonight we'll be discussing tomorrow's Kaohsiung mayoral by-elections, a former Japanese prime minister making a brief visit to Taipei to pay his respects to late former President Lee Dong-hui, the Interior Ministry officially postponing the issuance of electronic ID cards, a resumption of work on the long-delayed Taipei Dome and the pending opening of two pop music centres, one in Taipei and one in Kaohsiung. But we'll begin with a visit to Taiwan this week by US Secretary of Health and Human Services Alex Azar, who arrived at Taipei's Sungshan Airport on Sunday afternoon on a US Air Force C-40B aircraft. Azar's first official stop after his arrival was on Monday when he held talks with President Tsai Ing-wen. Now, of course, speaking at a press conference, Azar said that it was a true honour to be in Taipei to convey a message of strong support and friendship from President Donald Trump to Taiwan. However, the talking point of the meeting was Azar's verbal faux pas, in which he appeared to say either President Xi or President Xi. Azar, though, later explained that he accidentally mispronounced President Tsai Ing-wen's surname during the meeting and stressed that no offence had been attended. Now, the US official's next stop was to oversee the signing of the first Memorandum of Understanding on Health Cooperation between the US and Taiwan, and that was signed by American Institute in Taiwan Director Brent Christensen and Young Jin-ni, the chairwoman of the Taiwan Council for U.S. Affairs. The agreement is geared towards expanding cooperation on global health, security, infectious disease control and vaccine development. Azar's next stop was a meeting with Foreign Minister Joseph Wu, during which the U.S. official reiterated America's support for Taiwan's inclusion in international health forums and also touted what he called the Taiwan model of excellence in combating the coronavirus. The U.S. official also visited the memorial to former President Lee Dong-wei at the Taipei Guest House, and he then met members of the National Face Mask Team, which is comprised of private sector manufacturers that help the government produce, well, face masks. And there he told reporters that basically he discussed the possibility of Taiwanese healthcare supply manufacturers investing in the United States to bolster that country's productivity capability in such products. And the US Health Secretary and his delegation left Taiwan on Wednesday afternoon. So, of course, the meeting with Tsai Ing-wen has been described as a breakthrough and Foreign Minister Joseph Wu stressed that Azar's visit was a clear show of support for Taiwan. But Ross, I mean, breakthrough has been banded around a lot this week. Was it a breakthrough? Of course it wasn't a breakthrough. And of course he said President Xi, okay? So <laughs> so there's just no debate. You know, the listeners should not be misled by the BS or the spin that that government officials try or, or friends of the government, DPP legislators, whoever was on TV on Monday night, Tuesday, you know, professors claiming to be experts in, in a language which is not their native language. Uh, look, he, he screwed up. Let's not lie about it. I mean, that's just so pathetic. You know, anyone trying to claim that he said, but we don't say thank you presidency in English. OK, so let's let's just put that one to rest. I mean, it's nice that he came here uh not the first time that a cabinet level official came. You know, it's been discussed ad nauseum that Gina McCarthy, the EPA administrator, came here in 2014. Uh, you know, the, as I said in, in, in commentaries I, I published this week, Gavin, uh, 
you know, we really should be looking for the substance. And, and the big substance was what? Signing an MOU that just reiterated what what AIT and, and Weijiao Bu, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, announced in March about bilateral cooperation on, on COVID-19. Uh, you know, I think I think we should really should be looking about at the go forward. And there's just been too much focus on, on the here and now, right? So the plane. Well, that wasn't a breakthrough either because co- congressional delegations have, have taken official U.S. Uh, government aircraft. They parked at Songshan Airport for two nights, three days. In this case, it was three nights, four days. I mean, these are not breakthroughs. Uh, you know, even Azar and Chun Shijong, I, I mean, they've met so many times at, at uh, World Health Assembly sideline meetings when Taiwan has its, as you know, I, I love to call it the pity party sideline event at, uh, at the World Health Assembly because they're not allowed into the, the adults room. So uh, we really need to put this in some proper context, take a deep breath. And I think Taiwan is just being a bit too nice here. They should be saying, hey, U.S., what else are you going to do for me? You know, we're under pressure from China. We're cut out of international organizations. Who else are you going to send uh, to visit Taiwan regularly so we could stop calling it a breakthrough when you do do it in the in, in the final months of the Trump administration? I'm going to have to agree with uh, the majority of what, what Ross's analysis is there, but I'll just offer a tiny bit of pushback. I mean, uh, we all are familiar with the term that perception is everything, and there was a perception, at least domestically, and I'm assuming at least uh, regionally, that this was somewhat of a breakthrough and that this was a high-level visit, so that publicity can't hurt. And the fact that he did talk positively about Taiwan's response to COVID, and we got a little bit of uh, a mention about that as well, is also something that can't hurt. So I agree, but also I don't see it as, as a, a negative thing. I'm happy that it happened. And I did have a long conversation with the uh, National Senate University Institute of Political Science Director, Professor Frank Leo, and he, um, he, he also mentioned that he thinks that there should be uh, you know, regular uh, visits, uh, as Ross mentioned. But he's worried, and he says he understands that uh, there are many Americans who perhaps are not so satisfied with the Trump administration's domestic policies and how it's handling things. But he's concerned that a loss by Trump in November could bring any of these sort of uh, meetings or, or, or uh, visits to a complete halt. And uh, so, yeah, that's a, that was the view that, that I got from, from southern Taiwan. And, of course, talking of that issue, Ross, of course, Foreign Minister Joseph Wu was, of course, interviewed on CNN this week when he said that Taiwan has wide support from both sides of the aisle in the U.S. and probably nothing will change if Biden wins the election. Well, I mean, we often talk about how uh, the approach to China issues, Taiwan issues, in, in Congress is generally bipartisan. Uh, so if you look at who who votes in favor of uh, resolutions or, or laws or sections of laws that are favorable to Taiwan or taking action against China, that's generally bi- bipartisan. And that, that's a fact. Uh how an administration would approach it, though, is very different than how Congress would approach it, because the considerations of a, of a Biden administration would be different than the considerations of Democrats in Congress. But obviously, with all due respect to uh, Foreign Minister Wu, he's hedging. Right? He's, he's clearly hedging that, that there is a possibility that Biden will win the election. And, and we don't know. We can't predict today on August 14th, you know, despite the polls, who, who's going to win the U.S. election. But uh, uh, Biden might win. Trump.
Trump might win, but Biden might win. Uh, so so Foreign Minister Wu is clearly hedging. That's also one reason uh, why they said uh, Bikib Xiao, uh, who, who is uh, fairly progressive in her politics uh, and uh, you know, clearly has, has uh, uh, more of a natural affinity based on her politics uh, for the Democrats than she does for the Republicans. You know, it's a little odd to see her palling around with uh, more conservative Republicans who have uh, strong views on issues like abortion or marriage equality, which are completely inconsistent with Xiao Kim's views. Uh, so again, uh, the the Thai administration is hedging. Uh, they don't they don't want to come out and say we love Trump, we love everything the Trump administration's done for Taiwan, and we hope it gets reelected. <laughs> Moving on, and it's the Kaohsiung mayoral by-election tomorrow, Saturday, August the 15th, which is, of course, pitting the DPP's former Vice Premier Chen Chi Mai up against KMT Kaohsiung City Councillor Jane Lee and Taiwan People's Party City Councillor Ui Jung. Now, the candidates have been busy campaigning since registration closed on June the 24th, and the Kaohsiung Election Commission says a total of 2,301,597 people are eligible to vote in the by-election. Now, of interest... Interest. Well, here we go. Of the city's 38 administrative districts, Fengshan has the largest density of eligible voters, with 294,369, while Miaolin district has the smallest number of eligible voters, with 1,524 people there able to cast their ballots for the new mayor. Now, voters are going to the polling stations from between 10am and 4pm tomorrow. So, Michael, it's been heating up a bit in recent weeks with allegations of this and that, allegations of sort of not signing corruption pieces of paper, etc. Yeah, so, uh, you know, mudslinging at the end of an election is, is obviously a, a well-established tradition uh, all over the world and in Taiwan. And so over the last week, we heard the KMT criticize uh, the DPP candidate Chen Chi Mai for not signing an anti-corruption agreement. Um, and what they were really doing uh, was hinting at the fact that, uh, well, not more than hinting, they, they mentioned it outright, that his father had gone to prison for corruption uh, uh, related to scandals under the Chen Shui-bian administration, and that perhaps some of his relatives also were uh, connected to other scandals. Then he has some people actually on his team who have either been... Uh, alleged to have been involved or perhaps have been charged years ago in cases or so. They're, they're just trying to point out corruption. But it's a bit of a minefield for the uh, KMT to put their foot into the corruption case or, or the corruption uh, box at this point, because Jane Lee, the KMT candidate, her thesis issue is just such an easy comeback. Uh, as one of the, the surrogates pointed out, isn't cheating on your thesis a form of corruption? And uh, I really feel that that was a self-inflicted uh, wound for the KMT that is going to have a, a much bigger effect than they think it will. They said, the KMT said the other day that they think that most people have gotten over that and that it's not going to be a major factor in the election, and I couldn't disagree more. I think uh, the youth, especially younger voters, if she had any support among them to begin with, uh, many of those people are probably either going to stay at home or vote for somebody else because it really, it really was just um, a bit shameful. I mean, she, she didn't totally admit to doing it, but she renounced her degree, apologized, so sort of a de facto admission of that. So then yesterday, she, uh, Jane Lee came out and said that she thought the entire campaign was unfair because she felt like an impoverished person in this campaign with a big gap to the wealthy camp. She's saying that the KMT is not funding her campaign, that she's poor. 
And the response to that, again, it was almost like, you know, a gift wrap for the, uh, the DPP. They were like, we just want to remind everybody, if we need to remind you, that the KMT is, is well known as the wealthiest party on the planet, or at least was. And uh, this is just a ridiculous allegation. And she's she sort of just shooting herself in the gut repeatedly over and over again. So the rumor out there is that the KMT will be happy if they take somewhere in the order of what they took for the 2014 election. And if they can get to that level, then they will be satisfied and say they did a, a decent campaign. But just even making that to my eyes right now seems like a bit of a challenge. And what about the Taiwan People's Party candidate? Because, of course, you spoke to a professor recently who said, well, he's running as a sort of semi-independent who crosses the lines and he's both of this and that and the other. But apparently the professor you spoke to said there's probably not very many independent voters in Kaohsiung. Yeah, that was an interesting point that he made. So uh, the TPP candidate, uh, Mr. Wu, is a city councillor and he's actually a member of the People First Party, the PFP, and also the TPP, a dual member of these parties, and he's running as the candidate for the TPP. Now, back in the days when they were doing uh, surveys and stuff, it seems that his support level was not very high, but it doesn't appear that he's really trying to make a serious effort for City Hall. It's more of like a, a, a branding exercise to, to sort of test the waters in southern Taiwan and Kaohsiung and see if people are interested in this middle-of-the-road party founded by Taipei Mayor Koenza, and it doesn't really seem to be having all that much of a, a, a poll for voters down here. Um, actually, it doesn't seem to be having that big of a poll for uh, voters across Taiwan, but we'll have to see. And the professor pointed out that um, this idea that there's a whole trove of voters out there longing for a middle-of-the-road party or somebody that's not an ideologue he says that's just sort of romantic because the people who don't care about politics, they're not uh, middle-of-the-road people. They just don't care, and they're the most unlikely people to vote. So they're not independents. They just don't care about elections. Well, at least you got to give the guy credit for, uh, you know, willing to take one for the team, whether you Definitely. consider his team the P PFP team or the TPP team. Uh, and it'll be a learning exercise for the TPP, whether he gets 3%, 5%, 7%, it doesn't matter. Look, the, ri the rich-poor divide, to, to borrow the, the, the analogy that Michael mentioned here, is, is in support. I mean, there, there's almost nothing the Gobi Dog could have done. There's no one they could have put forward as a candidate uh, that, that could have won this election, given what we know from recent past, right? Hangul, you losing the presidential election and then being recalled by by this extraordinary large amount. So, uh, Kuomintang could have put forth anyone. The DPP could have put forth, you know, a piece of paper, not a, a human. A watermelon. Uh, <laughs> a, any analogy you want, uh, Gavid, you know, any silly cliche you, you, you could think of, fill in the blank because uh, the DPP looks set to win this election really easily. And then, you know what? It's kind of like what we were talking about Azar. Let's stop saying like how great it is. What a breakthrough. The DPP has retaken Kaohsiung and move on to what are they going to do for governance in, in, in this city going and, and, forward? And that is an interesting point because the campaign that we had for this uh, by-election was very, very short. Um, June 6th, he was recalled. Ten days later, uh, Han was ousted, and then here we are, just you know, uh, not very far down the road. They did have a debate on television. Jane Lee, the KMT candidate, came up with uh, an idea of building a rum distillery down here and using seawater to flush toilets and therefore save water. 
And to many people, that sounded just like a Ferris wheel or uh, dog racing or horse racing or whatever the ideas that, that Han had been throwing out there. Chen Mai says that his major economic policy will be to sort of stoke the flames of the U.S.-Sino uh, uh, trade war thing and try to get the companies that were planning on perhaps opening offices in Hong Kong, maybe to relocate to Kaohsiung, it's a bit far-fetched in my view, uh, getting some of the factories that are in China to come back to Kaohsiung and uh, open more economic zones. But they really didn't actually have enough time to put a lot of really concrete policies on the table and let voters uh, uh, you know, actually think about this. This is name recognition. Chen Shimai is well known. He ran the last campaign and lost, and then he went to, to his uh, position up in the, in, in the north. He, he, he had the brand recognition. Now, whether or not the KMT chose the right candidate is something that, uh, you know, it, it may be immaterial, as, as Ross points out. It, it may have not have mattered. But they also, they, they really didn't vet their candidate very well as, at all. And she was selected by, like, a... Um, amalgamation or a, a, of, of the, of the of polls. So all the polls were taken together of, of KMT members of Kaohsiung, and she had like a slight edge over all the other council people who wanted to run. So she's 40, in her, in her 40s, she's a woman, and it looks like the KMT thought that they could just put this younger female person in, and it would be sort of the opposite of what the last mayor was, and that would be enough to attract younger voters. But Maybe they should have gone with someone with more experience and uh, maybe older, and maybe they would have done a little bit better. The fact that they didn't manage to even do a, uh, a Google sort of check of, of her background, though, is, is a little bit surprising. And uh, I, I was personally kind of, kind of yeah, let's just say, surprised. And what about jobs in Kaohsiung, though, Michael? Because, of course, Kaohsiung is losing people. Yeah, we're losing people so fast that it's not inconceivable that Tainan could overtake uh, Kaohsiung within X amount of years. Um, uh, we, we just can't get this, this job thing rolling despite uh, opening up uh, centers and uh, trying to get, uh, you know, <laughs> all, the, all, the, all these things are open now. We've got light rail, we've got uh, a pop music center coming soon, uh, shipping a new, new uh, port and all of this stuff, but... The, the jobs are, are just not coming, and uh, it's, it's really, really, uh, I've, I've talked to so many experts about what could be done to change this, and almost all of them just sort of hem and haw, and, and they can't come up with a, a, a decent explanation. We, we can't go back to heavy industry, and that didn't, doesn't in these days employ that many people anyway. Light industry, the tech sector... Uh, but uh, th- we don't have the right people trained for these particular jobs. So it's a quandary that I, I really don't know what to say. But, 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 but Michael, you, you just said that, that Chen Chi-Bai is talking about bringing in manufacturing. Right? Yeah, well, that's so, what he's you know, talking about. It just doesn't make sense, right? The one day you say, let's bring in manufacturing. On the other hand, you're saying, people are leaving. We don't have employees. Look, if you're bringing manufacturing, you're, you're going to have to bring in a lot of foreign labor to, to staff assembly lines, right? And wait a second, time out. Who in Kaohsiung wants dirty manufacturing to come back from places like Shenzhen and Dongguan? Come on! Exactly. So, I mean, if you're talking about bringing in, uh, you know... uh, A shoe factory! I mean, come on! But if you're talking about doing VR uh, technology, okay, but even that, it doesn't employ massive amounts of people, and these people need to be rather highly qualified in what they do. 
so, yeah, it's just uh, there, there doesn't seem to be any, any good answers for this problem. So, Ross, there you go. We've got a problem with the population in Kaohsiung and some candidates that don't really have any concrete policies. Well, they're, they're not uh, economic planners, right? It's not – okay, I'm assuming Chen Chi Mai wins. I mean, it's not – Really, his forte. You know, here, here's why Chen, we have to remember why Hango Yu won and Chen Shi Mai lost in 2018. Hango right? Yu just was a much harder working candidate. Uh, you know, his, his short one liners about making Gao Xiong more prosper, prosperous resonated with the voters. Chen Shi Mai came across as, as this bookish. Uh, oh, I have so many wonderful ideas. We'll make Kaohsiung a happier place. We'll build parks and, and all this stuff. And it's just like, dude, stop talking so much and just, just be really clear what you want to do for this city. And, and, and it really fell flat versus what Hong Yu was saying. Uh, now now it's, the dynamic is completely different because the candidate from the Gominang is just you know, so weak that uh, that's why we were saying you, know, you could put forth whoever you want. Uh, but look, Kaohsiung's economic engine historically has been it, the port. It's facing increasing competition so it, uh, over the last decade or so. So it doesn't retain the position it had decades ago, 30 years ago, 25 years ago. Right. And you need a mayor who, who gets it and, and could really design some, some policies to help the port get back to or, or recover some of the market share that it's lost to competitors, which is very difficult, right? I mean, if you've lost market share as a transshipment location to places like uh, or, or you know, several ports in southern China plus Hong Kong, uh, it is is very very difficult, and we have to be frank. Now, people in Kaohsiung or Taiwan might not like it, but once he gets elected, then relations uh, on a city level with China are going to sour even more. So, Definitely. you know, tourism is not happening right now because of the virus situation. The the government in China had turned it off anyway because they wanted to uh, try and punish Tsai Ing-wen. Uh, but but they're not going to turn that back on, at least to Kaohsiung. Uh, you know, you could just, just assume that there's never going to be a large number of tourists, uh, at least in the near term. And then there was the produce export. So you could, you could say how awful Han Yu is, but at least buyers in China were willing to, to do business with uh, the, the marketing efforts of, of the municipal government in Kaohsiung, which is money for the farmers or, or everyone in the supply chain. Farmers, wholesalers, shippers, logistics, etc. That that is also not going to happen with Chen Chi Mai as the mayor as well. So so you're going to look at a fall in in the produce exports from the city of Kaohsiung or, or you know, the rural parts of the city of Kaohsiung. So that that's another economic headwind as well. So talking about you know things that sound really good like like like. Uh, 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 VR, like Michael mentioned, you know, the, the things that are just not realistic. He, he really needs to deal with those issues and, and, and not you know, talk about nice ideas that are not feasible. And then also it's going to be up to the central government to support him, right? They're going to, you know, he's their guy, right? He's from their party. They handpicked him to run again. Uh, he'll win. Uh, but then they're going to have to ante up a lot of money uh, or other types of support to help him because he's going to face the voters in 2022. Yeah, uh, definitely. The The only way that I see any uh, economic stability, even just stability, not progress, is basically bailouts from the central government. So the one positive thing that we are seeing down here is 
quality of life issues are improving slightly. You know, when he does say parks and all of that, they are building some really awesome parks and jogging trails and rail lines have gone underground, beautiful new train stations and stuff like that. But salaries are falling at the same time and people are moving out. So this is just a, a not really a win situation for the city at this point. And they, Ross is completely right. They have not come up with a policy or thought through this very well at all. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan this week, and former President Lee Dong-wei was cremated today at the Taipei Mortuary Service's second funeral parlour, and that cremation followed a private funeral service at the Jinan Presbyterian Church in Taipei. Now, last weekend, a former Japanese Prime Minister jetted into Taipei on a charter flight from Tokyo, ahead of a delegation of inter-party Japanese parliamentarians to actually pay their last respects to Lee at a memorial that was established for him at the Taipei Guest House. So, Ross, the in Taiwan of Yoshiro Mori. Who? I mean, this person has no residence with the Taiwan public whatsoever. So if, if, if the government here wants to spin this as, a, as breakthrough number two this week, I, I think that that's a big reach because uh, he was prime minister 20 years ago for a very brief period of time. His popularity ratings by the time he, his, he was basically run out of office by his own party uh, were kind of in, in, in the range of what Mying Joe's popularity ratings were at the end of his presidency. Uh, and uh, frankly, it's a guy whose politics are a bit right wing, uh, you know, not, not the kind of person who's going to say, yeah, we should apologize for Japan's occupation of large parts of Asia and the atrocities that were committed and the comfort women. You know, this is this is the guy I think, who's from that part of the LDP, the ruling party in Japan, that, that really doesn't want to apologize for Japan's activities during World War II. And they look at, at Taiwan and say, like, oh, well, that was our good colony where we did so much. I mean, they don't even like to say that we colonized it, right? And he's coming back to visit the colonial, the former colonial subjects, including a former colonial subject who eventually became president uh, and uh, uh, sadly passed passed away. Uh, you know, if it's not somebody from the current cabinet or somebody more recently in the cabinet, I mean, look, how long has 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 the current government, the current Abe team been in office, right? He's like the longest pr prime minister in Japanese history, certainly in post-World War II history. And, and, you know, nobody recently, I mean, he does cycle through cabinet people, right? There, there's people who've been in office more recently who could have come, which I think would have been a lot more relevant than a, a generally disliked former prime minister from 20 years ago that, that isn't well known in Taiwan, isn't well liked in Japan. Uh, it, it's just not a big deal. And frankly, I, I think this is just typical of the way that Japan handles bilateral relations with Taiwan. They make the most minimal gesture that they know will get a rise out of, out of some people in Taiwan, you know, pro-government media, uh, <clears throat> legislators, government spokesman and they think they've done enough they've done you know this is just like shinzo abe with his facebook post saying thank you taiwan for your well wishes when we've had an earthquake or a tsunami it's it, i think it's it's just not a big deal i think japan could have done much much better and, and uh, taiwan could have said you know guys you got to do a bit better than this don't send us you know someone no one in taiwan knows so michael do you think they could have done better 
I agree. It's a, a certainly a missed opportunity, even from just the perspective of wanting to uh, tick off China a little bit more. Uh, they could have done better than that. Um, on a different subject, uh, for, for me, just the, the passing of Lee, you know, virtually every commentator in Taiwan, local and uh, foreign, offered their thoughts in some article or whatever. And, um, I mean, it, they many of them made interesting points and, and everything, but I feel personally like if, if, you, if you weren't in Taiwan in the 80s and lived through the period when the KMT was absolutely dominant or even before that time, it's, it's a little bit hard for you to understand really the, 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 the transition that was made and who Li Donghui really was. He, he, he really was part of, of the, the, the KMT system. There's, there's all sorts of interesting things that you could look back on in his past uh, regarding land reform, uh, the promotion of Lanzan, or how his family got rich, all of these sort of things. Uh, but in the end, I mean, he did take us to the steps of the year 2000, where you could argue that that was actually really the first uh, free and fair or open election that, that Taiwan had. So just a lot, more con- a lot more complicated of an individual than perhaps the, the father of democracy handle that was given to him. I have great respect for him, but he was a, a lot more than just a, um, a sort of figurehead. And moving on, the Ministry of the Interior this week officially postponed its plans to issue electronic national identification cards in October, as it had originally planned to do, and it said it cancelled that idea because of the coronavirus pandemic. Now the Ministry now says the so-called EID cards are likely to be issued in the first quarter of next year and the earliest but only on a trial basis and those trials will only be carrying out in certain cities and counties. Now officials say the exact date that the new ID cards will be issued will be announced after the trial tests have been reviewed and evaluated. Now the reason for the postponement is according to officials due to a delay in the delivery of the special machines needed to make these super duper cards. So Ross could we have predicted this even before the pandemic that these EID cards just weren't going to happen on time? I think you you used the correct word, right? We could have predicted this. And why is that? We have to look at the history. Any analogous rollout of some similar technology in Taiwan has typically been delayed. Uh, Now, uh, let me preface the criticism by saying that when these things eventually are rolled out to the public or become available for the public to use, they generally do tend to work as expected. But the problem is always the slow rollout, or you say, why, why does Hong Kong or Singapore, places in China or Korea, have these technologies? And here in Taiwan, where we make all the equipment, I mean, we have the hardware, we make the chips, we make the machinery, everyone knows that. But, but the implementation of these things is always so slow and painful and delayed. And, and, and the same thing has happened with uh, uh, stored value cards. I mean, if we go all the way back, <laughs> Michael was mentioning going all the way back, you know, you had to be here, like when Lee Doug Hoy was president to appreciate the changes. I mean, you had to be here when the first generation of stored value cards were used on the buses in, in Taipei yeah. and other cities. Yeah. You had to stick this flimsy piece of plastic into a machine, and half the time the drivers, you know, screamed at you not to use it because the drivers were going to get penalized if 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 the dollar amounts weren't deducted from the cards. Anyway, uh, until they moved to tokens that had stored value in the MRT, and then to the yo-yo ka. Uh, you know, we're talking you know, stuff that happened in other places years before. And then it was the same thing with, again, I'm using it as an analogy, but something like like Apple Pay and Samsung Pay and, and these kinds of 
payment technologies, you know, it, it just the rollout in Taiwan is always so slow and painful. Again, eventually it gets rolled out; it'll work. Uh, but but just unnecessary delay. It's 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 just pathetic. And you know, part of it's the it's government, right? It's it's conservative government officials. They want to make sure everything is so absolutely perfect. Uh, you know, there, there, there's always infighting among different agencies. Uh, who knows what's going on with the vendors? You know, let, let's hope there's no corruption involved. Uh, but but it's just sad that these things take so long. And then, as you said, we could have predicted it that they would they would miss the deadline. I've heard people joke that uh, the government should. Uh, set whatever date they set. So if it's 2022, they should just move it forward two years, and that way we can beat expectations. It's it just it's it doesn't matter what it is. I agree that that's a problem. The only thing uh, else that I would add is uh, there are people in the international community, expat community, whatever you want to call them, who were looking forward to this change because. Uh, reportedly, we were going to get new ID numbers that would match Taiwanese native uh, ID numbers, and that would make it easier or even possible in some cases to book uh, high-speed rail tickets or different things like that. So that's going to be a little bit disappointing for uh, the international community. Yeah, moving on, and of course, the Taipei Dome was back in the news this week as the Taipei City Government announced that the construction of the long-suspended multi-purpose sports and leisure facility could now resume. Now, of course, construction was suspended on the Dome for more than five years due to disagreements between the City Government and the Far Glory Group over safety issues. So, Ross, it looks like that big monstrosity at the end of Zhongxiao East Road opposite the Sun Yat-sen Memorial Hall will finally be finished. Eventually, and uh, may- maybe uh, by the time it finishes, you could use your new ID card uh, if they require ID <laughs> as part of entering the, the facilities. Uh, you know, it, it, in a way, it is similar to the, the saga with the ID card, right? Uh, different city governments, administrations, accusations of wrongdoing, let's go to court, uh, let's have different government departments uh, have their say. Uh, you, know, to, to, you know, to go back to the criticism of America, it's going to be that he campaigned on on stopping this project. Uh, but once he got into office and and his team looked at this, they did find some things wrong. You know, f- the the way some of the exits were designed were, were not really consistent with the fire code and stuff like that. Uh, but if they were hoping to find corruption in the awarding of of the rights to build this project. They, they obviously couldn't find it as, as hard as they look. So for people who don't like Mayor Howe, the former, the preceding mayor, uh, you know, you, you, have to, you know, you got to face the reality that, you know, it's not like Mayor Howe got a bribe to approve this project or some kind of wrongdoing of that nature occurred. Uh, yeah, I guess some people always prefer that this would have been a big park and, and, and not uh, this mixed use uh, hotel mall uh, a dome project. Uh, but. That's progress. Uh, if, if you want to attract big events, uh, hopefully we can have more events. So when the virus situation abates and, and entertainers traveler, you want to have bigger uh, concerts, sporting events, uh, you, you need this kind of facility. You know, the, the, the dome on, uh, on Nanjing is, is limited in size for, for the kinds of events it could have. Uh, and I, I don't think anyone is really... Or, or I, I don't think a lot of people are complaining. There are always going to be a small number of people who are not happy uh, complaining about uh, having another entertainment venue, whether it's for, for the concerts or the shopping mall 
uh, hotel, restaurants. Uh, you know, we always talk about stimulating the domestic economy, getting people to spend more. The government is handed out uh, thousands of NT and vouchers to the public. Uh, you know, you, you need places to spend the money. And, and uh, you know, it's not like opponents have said, well, there's already enough. We already have enough malls in, in the Shinny District. We have enough hotels. They didn't make that case. Uh, so, you know, that, that's progress. And uh, it's a lot better, Gavin, that it gets completed. Right. I mean, being in limbo this long, uh, it's an eyesore. It's dangerous. It makes government look bad, whether municipal government, central government. Uh, that that That's not a solution either. So you know, whatever you don't like about it, you know, it's unfortunate. But uh, at this stage, it's better that it gets completed. And it's a big sports building. And of course, Michael, you've got a rather large sports building in Kaohsiung that was built seven years ago to host the World Games. Is that still bringing in dollar money? Well, yeah. I mean, they made sort of the same arguments that Ross just made, sort of like if you build it, uh, they will come. And also, uh, if we don't have these sort of facilities, then how can we host these sort of facilities? But I, I, I hope that the Taipei one does not turn into the equivalent of the Kaohsiung one. We had like one May Day concert there uh, maybe eight months ago or something. But for the most part, it sits there empty and com- just just... It's it's nice to look out from the outside, but no, nothing has been done there. So, especially with this virus situation, probably going to be affecting the world for at least a couple more years. Uh, I don't see any any uh, change in, in status. So, yeah, I'm one of those people who was living in Taipei at that time when they were debating that dome who wanted the park, and I wish they had gone with the park, to be frank. It would have probably been quicker, because they would have probably finished. All you got to do is plant some trees and put some soil down and put some nice pretty flowers in there. And some places for kids to play. Taipei City doesn't have, like, uh, you know, downtown doesn't have any, even any decent playgrounds. I wanted something for my kids to hang out at. But anyway, a dome is a dome, and I, as, as Ross said, finishing it is much better than not finishing it. That's that's for sure. And before we go this week, but staying with construction projects, Taipei is going to get a new building. Not the dome I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Taipei Music Centre, which apparently, according to Taipei Deputy Mayor Tsai Bing-kun, will basically be an icon and like like a diamond that lights up the area and be the centre of Asian pop music. But of course, Michael, you've also got a music centre called the Kaohsiung Music Centre. So which one is going to be the real diamond here? Because I believe yours is actually going to open in September. Well, they say it's going to open in September, but I rode by yesterday on my bicycle, and uh, the front uh, area is still very much under construction. Glass has yet to be put into windows and stuff, so uh, I hope that they do it. Um, It looks very uh, promising. So we're talking about the entire Love Pier area. uh, It's like a U-shaped area that comes around the the mouth of the Love River. Rumor has it that that's where... uh, People, you, wives and girlfriends used to see off the, uh, their, their boyfriends and husbands as they went off to Mazu and Jinmen for military tours. So it's called the Love Pier. And they've got a massive building there for both indoor and outdoor performances. Several thousand people can fit in there. They've got an area where it's sort of like a high-class night market for, for vendors there. You've got a bridge that connects the two. And then, interestingly, they've got six of these things that they call the whales. And they're like smaller, very uh, reasonably-sized performance halls for like several hundred people only. Two of them are already occupied by gaming companies, and they do various events there. But the idea would be that uh, up-and-coming bands could perform there for smaller groups of people, and it would be cheaper. And, uh, so 
the, it's moving on, and the, <laughs> the question is who's going to come, especially during the, the virus time. The idea was that, let's say, Katy Perry or whatever, she does a concert in Taipei, and then she could hop on the high-speed rail and be down in Kaohsiung for another one, and Kaohsiung would finally get to have some international acts you know, coming so we wouldn't have to always go up to Taipei. But uh, the Taipei one seems to be a little bit different in its mission, where they are going to offer recording studios and stuff like that. So if that actually comes to fruition, where people are able to cheaply, and I mean very cheaply, uh, record demos or uh, stuff like that, perhaps the, the mission of the Taipei one might be more successful. The thing for Kaohsiung, though, is it has very much beautified the, the, the waterfront area. This is the, the biggest change to the waterfront that uh, the city has seen in, I don't know, at least 50-something years. It, it, it looks really good. It, uh, it has that modern look to it. The building looks like something, you know, aliens would approve of. So, yeah, that's, we're, we're waiting. I, I, I'm going to guess that it's not going to open until next year, however. And, of course, Ross, the one in the Taipei Music Center is apparently slated to open on September the 5th. I look forward to seeing Merica at, at this opening event because, you know, he's a guy who looks like he's really in touch with trends and <laughs> <laughs> current music and what what young people... I mean, just imagine the juxtaposition, right? Merica is going to be up on the stage cutting the ribbon or whatever they're going to do, and he's going to be there with, with uh, younger performing, you know, artsy uh, types in their teens or 20s. Uh, you know, it's not his scene, but... Uh, he makes music videos. Well, if it's going to help him get elected president... 2024, I guess, you know, he considers it necessary to do. But, you know, it, it, this is not so different than other parts of, of our discussion today, right? The, we talked about the, the Taipei Dome and the rollout of, of the new ID card, right? We see too much government, right? Government getting involved in, in industry, uh, in this case, right? In, in the recording industry. Uh, you know that 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 this is just socialism nearly run amok. Uh, I you know it, it, why, why should government be providing this or, or or making redundant facilities? Right? I mean, we have municipal governments going off and building these facilities, whether it's in Kaohsiung or Taipei, to basically subsidize young young people's aspirations to be music stars. I mean this. The, and, and, and they're building like these really nice, expensive facilities too. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, costing the taxpayers a lot of money, and the mission might not really be what government should be doing anyway. Anyway, we'll leave it there. And obviously, Ross Feingold won't be recording a demo for us at the Taipei Music Center when it opens. Anyway, I have been joined in the studio today by Ross Feingold. Good evening. Have a good weekend. And on the telephone by Michael Smith in Kaohsiung. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.